God bless you. Good to be with you again. And we are going to be looking at this chapter under the title, as mentioned before, Conviction. And I, I think back, you know, when the tiny nation of Holland uh, fell into the hands of Nazi Germany just prior to World War II, the headlines in our nation's newspaper hardly took notice. But in the history of Europe, it stands as a very dark legacy. Now, two books emerged from that difficult time in Holland that live on today. Uh, the first book was written by a, a young lady named Anne Frank. And uh, some of you who studied German particularly perhaps remember reading the diary of Anne Frank uh, there. She was taken and snatched away and... Uh, uh, removed from the security of their own family and thrown into a time of pain and abuse and even death. She met her demise in one of the camps uh, that the Nazis had. There was a second book that uh, is known as The Hiding Place, written by Corey Tin Boom. Uh, she was snatched away and introduced to a place called Ravensbrook. And it was in the concentration camps that her father and her sister met their demise. But by the grace of God, Corey continued to live on and tell her story. Uh, several years ago, she died. I'm not sure how many, maybe 10 or 15 years ago she died. And she was buried at a cemetery there in Santa Ana. Uh, and... Uh, uh, while living, however, uh, they planted a tree in a place called Yad Vashem uh, in the city of Jerusalem. And it was really a memorial to those who helped the Jews during the time of the Holocaust. Those of you who have been to Israel, those of you who are going to Israel, will certainly make that place a stopping point. It's a very sobering place, but one of which uh, the grace of God prevails. Interestingly enough, uh, she had a tree while living that was planted in her honor for her, her job, for her work in, in dealing and hiding the Jews from the Nazis. But on the day she died, ironically, perhaps even more important than that, uh, God's will, but the tree planted in, ja in Yad Vashem for her died as well. So it's very, very interesting. You know, the fall of Holland represented the breakup of a lot of homes. And it's not unlike the fall of the Jews into the hands of Babylon 2,500 years ago. It's, pretty much, it's parallel to that. The story of Daniel stands out in an era of the Babylonian rule sometime around 500 B.C. Uh, we... Uh, we can read about it in somewhat of a sterile fashion, but behind the scenes, families were affected. Now, as a young teenager, Daniel and his three buddies, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, they were ripped from their home, and they probably never saw their parents again. Uh, in the opening chapter of the book is really uh, what we read is pretty much a diary of what was going on during that time. Daniel is the author of the book that bears his name. Anyway, what he does here is he lays out a foundation 
uh, for the magnificent way in which God used him in a powerful way during that particular era. And so what I want to do is look at that story and uh, share it with you, at least my understanding of it. You have a pretty detailed outline if you want to follow along and know where I'm going. And I'll be reading quite a few of what was read a little bit earlier today, just in the context of what I'm saying. But it does say there in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now Israel at that particular time in her history was actually a divided nation. There was a northern kingdom that was called Israel during that time. And it was uh, attacked by the Assyrians and the people were carried into captivity. The southern, king, the southern part of what would be called the, the nation of Israel was the region that is called Judah. It would be southern part from Israel up here and Judah down here. But the Judah, it was in Judah where Nebuchadnezzar went and hauled the captives away. Uh, look at verse 2 up there for a minute. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. One of the questions uh, that you come out of something like this is why in the world would, would Nebuchadnezzar bother himself with the temple? Why would he go in and take the utensils out of the temple there? And the reason he did that is simply because it, it was reason back then that when one nation conquered another nation, the gods of the victorious nation conquered the gods of the defeated nation. And if a god could not defend his own utensils within the own temple, then they, you don't have a, to worry about it at all. You don't have to worry about what you do to them if God can't defend his own temple. And so what Nebuchadnezzar did, he took all of this stuff and, and, and captives and hauled them back to Babylon. Uh, while he was sacking Jerusalem, however, he got word that his father had died. And so he made a trip back to Babylon before his armies did. And uh, he left word to his right-hand man, and that would be Asphanes, uh, to take some captives back. But they weren't to take just anybody. Uh, notice the qualifications again in verse 3. Then the king ordered Asphanes, the chief of the officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family, and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar wanted the cream of the crop. You see, it was typical back at that period of time that uh, monarchs would uh, grace their own court with the uh, outstanding young men of the captured country. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. But he wanted people who were physically handsome, mentally gifted, socially poised. And Daniel fell into that category. He had brains, he had brawn. And he had balance. Now, 
During that time, or I should say after that time, we look at the challenges that Daniel and particularly his two buddies, our three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the pagan names. We know that their, their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. But anyway, there were some challenges, and each one of the challenges that this group of people faced was designed to destroy their allegiance to the God of Israel. And uh, let me just briefly run over them. The first one was a secular education. Uh, it says in verse 4, he ordered Asphenaz, ordered him, and that would be Asphenaz, to teach these young captives the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, and those would be the Babylonians. He appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of that time, they would enter into the king's personal service. So these young teens, these young Hebrew young boys, were actually going to get this secular indoctrination. Now, some of the courses, of course, would pose absolutely no problem whatsoever, like architecture or history or mathematics. But the course in Babylonian religions would be dramatically opposed to their belief in God. You see, the Babylonians at that time had a mythological view of human origin. They had a humanistic view of the human fall into sin. And they had a rationalistic view of destiny itself. So the three major questions in life, uh, from where did I come, who am I, where am I going... And these three things were attacked by the theories and the, the, the thought and the, the evolution, I should say, of, of the Babylonian religion. Uh, the origin, identity, and destiny, just contrary to their beliefs. So day in, day out, year in, year out, uh, they studied. There were no electives, no vacations, no summer holidays when you can get to go home. They're just there the whole time. Now, a lot of people would have walked away from the God of, uh, that you and I know. They would have just kind of cast it aside and ignored it altogether. And yet Daniel and his three buddies, as we'll see, emerged from this concentrated exposure with a faith that is undaunted, with a devotion that is unprecedented. You see, one of the things Daniel did is that he mastered his education, but he did not let his education master him. Uh, you don't have to believe everything that you learn. Uh, the theory of evolution, for instance, contends that human beings are the highest form of the animal kingdom. And that carries, belief in that carries tremendous moral implications. Abortion, Ethnic cleansing become little more than the survival of the fittest. There's no philosophical basis for making them moral issues if there's no God. So sleeping around are, becomes an acceptable option, not a sinful passion. You know, the Bible says that humans bear the image of God. And that gives us a special dignity. Uh, we can think morally. We can think ethically. We can appreciate aesthetics. We can write poetry. We can worship the Savior in spirit and in truth. Uh, any talk of morality in the context of atheism, however, always is going to lead to intellectual chaos. 
Atheism flourishes in academia, but it blows up in real life. And Daniel and his buddies had reason on their side and they knew it. And therefore, they learned what they needed to learn without being swayed by it. So they got that heathen education. The second thing, the second challenge was a heathen name. Verse 6. Among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, giving someone a new name was a common practice in that day for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was simply meant to honor the person who was given the new name. Sometimes it was meant to commemorate a particular event in history. Generally, however, it was designed to honor the gods of the one who was imposing the new name. And that was the case here. All four of these young men had names that linked them with the God of Israel. All four names of these young men ended in either E-L or A-H. E-L standing for the biblical God Elohim, the powerful creator God that, that we worship. The A-H is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the personal God, that we get to know who he is. So they all had biblical names named after the great God of the scriptures. You know, and Daniel, Daniel's name means God is my judge. In other words, God has a right to make the rules and nothing will slide by him. And Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar after the Babylonian god Baal. Hananiah means God is gracious. God gives us what we don't deserve and cannot earn. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, exalting the Babylonian god of Aku. Mishael means who is what God is. And the obvious answer is nobody. Nobody is what God is. No one can compare to God. Nothing can usurp the place of God. Mishael was given the name Meshach after the Babylonian god of Myrrh. Now, Azariah means Jehovah is my help. He's always available. He never fails. Azariah was given the name Abednego, Nebo being the son of the Babylonian deity Baal. So four Hebrew names reflect, the four Hebrew names reflected a godly upbringing. The new names was just a subtle form of pressure designed to wean them from their faith in God, cause them to accept the customs in Babylon, and to sever their identity with the God of Israel. And yet, they successfully met the second challenge. What does Daniel call himself all the way through the book? You, you read the entire book and Daniel calls himself Daniel, whom the king calls Belteshazzar. In chapter 10, God calls him Daniel, greatly beloved. In Matthew 24, Jesus calls him Daniel, the prophet. So God never accepted the name change. Jesus never accepted the name change and neither did Daniel. So that was the second challenge. The third challenge was eating 
the food from the king's table, if you please, the idolatrous food. Again, let me read a few verses. In verse 5, it says, And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. You see, it was customary during that particular time for a king to allot from his kitchen to those people who were being trained for his court. And Daniel was allowed to partake of all of the delicacies of the emperor's menu. Wine was a common drink of the day. There were various grades of it. Daniel and his friends would have the very best. Uh, Verse 8, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, how in the world would Daniel defile himself by eating this food? A couple of thoughts here. First, at times the food would include meat declared unclean by the Mosaic law. In other words, the food would not be kosher. Uh, Second, all food from the royal kitchen, from Nebuchadnezzar's kitchen, would first be dedicated to the gods to assure their favor. And Daniel felt that by eating that food, he would be giving tacit recognition of the existence of those gods. And he just didn't want to do it. His conscience would not allow him to participate. Now, back in verse 8, it does say, Daniel made up his mind. And that's a significant phrase. When it talks about uh, making up your mind, what it really means is that it means to collect and put together so as to establish strength. It's used in making of a rope. You know, you have this rope here, and you wind all of these uh, little strands together so that it becomes a strong anchoring rope. And what it means here, what, you know, specifically, it means to collect so as to establish strength in such a way. And what Daniel did is that he collected all of the principles that he knew about God and the glory of God and the will of God, and he wound them together into a strong cord of conviction during that time, and it became an anchor, an anchor for him. In other words, what he was going to do, he's saying, I can't do this. And he's made a a once and for all decision because he didn't want to leave it to his own moral inclination at that particular moment. Now, again, I want you to note the factors which would have made this a very difficult decision. First, the king had ordered the menu, and therefore it was a law. And disobedience, you know, could incur severe punishment. Uh, Second, to refuse would have been a sure way to spoil any chances of raising to a top level, of rising to a top level in the midst of serving in the king's court. But third, and third, the quality of the food by the king would have been very, very attractive. It would have been Ruth Chris and in and out, or McDonald's. But, you know, so he was giving up that kind of thing. So what he does, uh, Daniel 
doesn't do any of those things, uh, but he didn't, and he also didn't use his convictions as a cloak for rudeness or fanaticism. He makes a request. He simply says in verse 8, Daniel sought permission from the commander, and that's Asphanes, of the officials so that he might not defile himself. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, listen, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? You'll make me forfeit my head to the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, this is not just exaggeration here. Nebuchadnezzar had a way of putting officials who didn't obey him into the past tense. And so he was somewhat scared about this whole thing. And so Daniel is very diplomatic here. He pursues another alternative. He says, test your servant for 10 days. You know, let us be given vegetables and water. And then at the end of that period, check out our appearance, our stamina with those who eat the king's choice food. And then deal with your servant accordingly. That's how diplomatic he really was. And at the end of the 10 days, and the guy says, okay, I can do that. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends, they were healthier. They were better looking. Their eyes were sparkling a little bit more. Uh, so, uh-oh, got you covered. All right. <laughs> I don't get a chance to see all of this good stuff, Vine. <laughs> you know? Uh, anyway, uh, he, he just, uh, they were in a lot better shape. And uh, so the reward for that kind of conviction was you continue to get to eat vegetables and water. So Daniel successfully meets the third major challenge of his faith. You know, challenge number one of getting a secular education he participated in, it didn't affect him. Challenge two of a, a heathen name, he simply endured. He couldn't change it. But challenge three, he refused. He could not accept it. He would not eat from the king's choice table. But he successfully conquers that which was designed to torpedo his belief in the God of Israel. Now the last few verses really transfer us to the graduation day. This is cap and gown day, and it was three years later. And they're really worth reading again. And it says in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar and the king talked with them. And out of all them, all, all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service, and as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And so these uh, three young Jewish men graduated with high honors, you know, valedictorian-type individuals. Uh, because, uh, and they were given high positions within the king's court. And we learned some things. We learned that a conviction is not simply a belief. 
A conviction is a belief that governs behavior. And if a conviction is to endure, it must rest on an enduring foundation. And that foundation, you know, was absent in a, in a good part of my life. You know, you go back into the 1960s and things were really wild during that particular era of time. Uh, your parents probably know something about it, but not necessarily all of them. Uh, but uh, during that 60s time, it was a tumultuous time here in America because we denied personal ethics, embraced open sex, and legalized drugs. And yet we, we screamed for a lofty social ethic with respect to civil rights, world peace, and ecological balance. We wanted free love without responsibility, no killing except for unborn babies, and a pure environment free of toxic substances except for that which we put into our own system. Our convictions were actually, during that time, uh, contradictions. We took relativism and self-centeredness, dressed it in the garb of love and altruism, and then we watched the entire thing collapse. You know, we flounder today for the same reason. When convictions lose their biblical moorings, they're reduced to preferences where everybody can be right. And as a nation, we're reaping what I believe to be a sociological whirlwind because of it. You know, when you look at the Word of God... Uh, we want to form spirit-directing, God-honoring, grace-empowering, people-edifying, community-building convictions. Now, let me close with uh, three, three principles, okay? There's three thoughts. First, God-honoring convictions can overcome worldly pressure. The power within us is always going to be greater than the temptation from without. You know, you'd better, you, you think back to Daniel and eating the, the diet food that he was eating during that time, wouldn't eat of the king's choice table, but you go back to that particular time, and you better believe that to Daniel, those Texas T-bones looked good that everybody else was eating. But nevertheless, you know, particularly as he poured milk over another bowl of oatmeal or something like that. <laughs> But Daniel resisted the temptation. And the encouragement is, is by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, we can do exactly the same thing. We're always going to be tempted to head in the wrong direction, to do something that we know is definitely going to be harmful, and we think we can somehow get away with it. But in reality, it just reminds us that it, it can't. Uh, Daniel resisted by God's grace, and we can too. You know, there's a, I don't know, 70-year-old story, I think, maybe a 80-year-old story that comes out of the city of London. There was a guy there who was a pastoring a, a downtown church in the city of London back before World War II. And uh, he lived on the outskirts, and he took public transportation in, either some sort of a bus or train or whatever, but he stepped on the vehicle and paid his fare. And uh, then he went and took a seat as he was heading down toward the office. And after he, 
After he paid his fare, he realized that the uh, driver had returned to him too much change. And he fumbled through it, he counted it several times, and he rationalized in his own heart, isn't it wonderful how God provides, because it could have been lunch that day. But ultimately, he wrestled with himself all the way down to where the bus stopped for him to get off. And he couldn't live with himself any longer, so he just walked up and he said to the driver, hey, you gave me too much change in return to what I paid you. Uh, You made a mistake. And the driver said, it was no mistake. He says, I was in your service yesterday when you talked about integrity and honesty. And here I saw you get on the bus. I thought I'd put you to the test. (laughs) Ah. Second, God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. You know, God sees you when you take a stand for that which is right, and he remembers it, and he rewards. You know, verse 21, it says, Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. And this is an amazing verse. Cyrus was the the leader of the Medo-Persian empire that conquered the Babylonians 70 years later. So Daniel was now an old man, probably in his 90s during that time, and he served in a high position under five different kings for 70 years without compromise. So God trusted Daniel with great responsibility and power because of the character of his life. And when we're tempted to take it easy... When we're tempted to take the unethical shortcut, what we need to do is think of the long term, uh, not defiling ourselves. We're thankful that the Spirit of God lives within us that can just, hey, listen, don't do that. Don't do that. You're bigger than that. You don't have to do that. Uh, Third, God-honoring convictions glorify a people-loving God. Now think about Daniel just one more time for a moment. Uh, He left his home. He went into exile. He lived correctly, suffered greatly, died obscurely. That was Daniel. Think about Jesus. He left his home, went into exile, lived perfectly, suffered infinitely, died obscurely. See, Jesus is the focal point of history to which the book of Daniel points. Uh, in fact, he's the whole, he, he's, you know, set the dating system. B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. So Daniel lived for the glory of God. Uh, as one who would, he lived for the glory of the one who would come and correct the problem of sin. We live for the glory of, of the one who did come and correct the problem of sin. So the life of the resurrected Jesus living in me 
living in you is the basis of the convictions that we hold. And the power of the resurrected Christ in us is our enablement to live them out. Perfectly? No. But that's why he gives us the chance to just confess that we blew it today and we can move on with a clean start tomorrow. It's just a reminder to do what Daniel did. Look to Christ, love Christ, follow Christ, obey Christ, love him, uh, keep him at the central focus of our life and somehow what he did on our behalf so that we can be a part of his family uh, gives us the enablement to be able to live for his glory, which is really what life is all about. Father, we thank you uh, for the realization that you've done so much for us. And we may not find ourselves in quite the same position as Daniel ever and his friends, but we're thankful, Lord, that you've included stories like that in the scriptures to encourage us all that uh, we can stand up for that which is right without being ridiculous, without being ornery, without building walls to other people. Father, if we're just gracious, if we just have the love and the patience that, that you have and that you showed to people, uh, Lord, uh, our lives are going to carry tremendous impact and we're going to be better off personally because of it. We thank you that we can gain strength from our our assembly here each day to power up, if you please, for the week that's ahead of us. Uh, no matter what we do or what we're studying, Father, you are preeminent, and we thank you for that kind of a God who is infinite and yet can focus on our our little our littleness down here on earth, and yet, Father decree it to be infinitely valuable. And may we live this very day as though we are deeply loved. In Christ's name, amen.